Did you know your body physically reacts when you feel anxiety or fear? And do you know what to do when that happens so that you don't get stuck? Coming up next on the Coaching and Positive Psychology Podcast, I am talking to neuroscientist Dr. Ebony Glover about her research on anxiety, on resilience, and simply how to keep moving forward. You don't want to miss this. Welcome to the Coaching and Positive Psychology Podcast. You know, if you're interested in personal development or coaching, at some point you have been curious about neuroscience, and so you're going to love our guest today. Our guest is Dr. Ebony Glover. Ebony, um, I first met in 2010 because she actually went through the very first coach training intensive that the Coaching and Positive Psychology Institute had. And she had just at that time recently finished her PhD in neuroscience at Emory. And I thought she was just absolutely fascinating. She was a 20 something, just like powerhouse and didn't even show up like, hey, I'm great. She was just like, ah, yeah, I've done this. <laughs> and so it's all these years later. And uh, just a few months ago, I was on my social media and I was like, there's Ebony. And I just wanted to introduce her to our CAP community um, and talk about the work that she is doing. She's now an associate professor of neuroscience at Kennesaw State University here just outside of Atlanta, where she directs the um, effective neuroscience laboratory and conducts research aimed at understanding biological and environmental factors associated with fear and anxiety behaviors. And she does that to help reduce mental health disparities. Looking at the work that she does now, I think it's so relevant to all of us, especially with all that we've been through the last couple of years collectively and that we're still going through. Um, not just the pandemic, but just threats around, um, I think, ex existential threats around things like um, war and where are we going, you know, as a country for those of us here in the U.S., um, you know, health challenges. We've had a lot of social and racial unrest. There's just been so much going on. And that doesn't include what's going on in our individual lives that might be creating um, some fear or anxiety. So Ebony, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. It is an honor. I am uh, just fascinated by the work you're doing, but let's go back about 12 years. <laughs> when we first met, I think it was at the W Hotel where we hosted the very first coach training intensive. Um, and there you were, you know, we've often attracted people who are um, lifelong learners who have advanced degrees and are always looking for, for new types of information. What led you to the coach training intensive? Because when I saw that you were a neuroscientist, when you got there, I just thought it was fascinating. And obviously, neuroscience has a lot to say about coaching. But, but what got your interest? Yeah, that's a that's a really great question. During that time, 2010, I was, as you said, a recent graduate. I had recently received my PhD in neuroscience. And during that time, there's also a, you know, I was dealing with a very life-changing event. I was a new mother. Mm -hmm. Um, I was also recently divorced. Mm -hmm. Um, and I was sort of 
having an existential crisis, so to speak. I I was very disillusioned with uh, my career path. Uh, neuroscience was always uh, something that I was interested in, but the act of being a neuroscience scientist and doing the research um, at the time, especially as I was balancing motherhood and um, and other challenges, uh, I, I was seeking something different. And mm-hmm. I came across uh, the Institute and I saw it and I, I saw your story and how you uh, sort of pivoted from a corporate America career path and um, found the new path that was seemed to be something that was really fulfilling for you and that fulfilled sort of your your passions and um, your true inner gifts. And I that was just very motivating and inspiring to me. And mm. I wanted to use my neuroscience training. I wanted, I wasn't clear really on how I wanted to pivot, but I saw it as a way to explore I was curious and and sort of that's sort of what led me there. I, I I just, you know, wanted to explore my curiosity and see what Valley Burton, you know, what is she doing and how how can I get, be a part of, you know, what what she's doing. I love that. You know, um I talk a lot about overcoming fear. I have over the last couple of decades since I started doing the work that I do. And so much of positive psychology in helping people get unstuck, whatever stuck is. I mean, we all, we've all been stuck in various ways. So much of it is rooted in fear. Um, and now that's, that's a big part of what you study. What is the most interesting thing you've learned about fear in your research? I would say the, the revelation that fear is really at its root, it's a biological construct. It's a physical thing and not just some phantom, you know, emotion. It actually exists in the form of molecules, amino acids, proteins, cells and chemicals in the body. Um, And while it's often triggered by events outside of you, events in the world, it, it lives in your brain. And it usually starts with your sensory systems, such as your sense of vision and hearing and smell and taste. These are the systems that detect the world around us, that's where fear usually enters the body. And this this information gets sent through circuits in our brain to these internal defense systems that activate our muscles to either mobilize us to fight or flee, Mm -hmm. but it can also cause us to freeze and do nothing. And it activates our internal organs, such as our heart and our lungs, and all and all of it really is to mobilize us to um, figure out what the threat is and how to respond. So it's and really about protecting ourselves. It is a form of protection of mm-hmm. imminent danger uh, or of some imagined danger, which <laughs> and that that can be a problem yeah. when fear sort of gets out of control. Um, but yes, it's a form of protection. It's a very, it's an ally for us to help us survive. Wow. So when you say this physical response um, is happening in the body, I mean, I think a lot of us, when we think about it, we can feel it. It's the the conversation you know you need to have, and yet you you can't seem to just get the words out um, or, the, or the move you want to make. And you just you just stay exactly where you are. And what you're saying is, your body is almost fighting against what your mind is telling you 
to do. Is that an accurate way to describe it? That is accurate. And, and it also gets to another really interesting thing that really struck me when I first learned about fear. And that's the fact that it operates on two levels. It operates as an unconscious experience as well as a conscious experience. And so you talk about, you have these feelings in your body, but then you have this conscious thought of, I want to do this, but then your body is not allowing you to. And there's this really important thing where we have to learn how to recognize these unconscious feelings and then be able to tame them using our conscious thought and direct this yeah. this fear that we have yeah. within us. That's like the essence of resilience, having that level of awareness of what's happening. What I'm curious about is, you know, how many people are like, if you if you looked at the average person, like how common is it for people to have the awareness of what's happening in their thoughts. It, it appears to me that most people just let their thoughts take over and run them wherever the thoughts want to yes. go, as opposed to, as I often say, you've got to notice the stressors when they're happening and say, hey, what am I saying to myself? How common is it for people to actually stop and, and coach themselves by saying, hey, what's going on here? Or what am I saying? And is this true? Or is it actually not true, but it's still creating fear? The short answer is, it's not common enough. Uh, the reality is most people are driven by these unconscious um, sensations that they are perceiving, whether real or imaginary, about this, you know, uncertain fear threat that's ahead of them. And what's uh, what's needed and not common enough is this really astute awareness and presence of mind to know what is actually happening right now, what is actually in my domain of control. And once you have that clear understanding of what the threat actually is that you're perceiving, whether it's real or not, you can then be emboldened and empowered to actually act on it or not act on it with mm -hmm. a sense of clarity and purpose. Wow. So what strikes me is we all have had experience, you know, experiences growing up, experiences even in adulthood that have shaped us, sometimes not for the better um, because fear was real and something happened that we didn't want. To happen, you know, whether it is a divorce, you and I share that, right? Whether it is, um, you know, perhaps some other type of uh, trauma, it could be a, you know, a job loss, it could be rejection in a relationship, and so those responses, I'm guessing, just become our natural instinct because we have experienced the consequence of real fear. So if if that's you, how do you begin to just change your responses when they've become so ingrained in what you do? So research has, has actually shown that one of the most effective strategies for shifting your mind out of a state of fear and anxiety to sort of a state of uh, you know, confidence and peace is to practice something called mindfulness. And yeah. I'm sure many of your um, listeners have heard of this. It's a basic human ability to really be fully present and aware of what's actually happening so that you are not overly reactive or overwhelmed 
by things that you perceive are happening around you that may or may not be actually um, a reality. And so through these mindful practices such as meditation, um, it allows you to focus your energies um, so that you can learn how to change your thought, um, reset them, and replace them, um, whether with, you know, replace negative feelings such as doom or feelings that, you know, it's too much, I'm overwhelmed, replacing those with positive feelings that are affirming, um, you know, rather than being apprehensive, maybe you can replace that with to being curious. Um, And you're more- What what does that look like? Like I'm sitting here, I'm all of a sudden feeling overwhelmed. I can't handle all this. I'm telling myself those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. So- in in those moments, if I were to get curious, would it just be like, what what are you feeling right now? And is that an accurate thought that you're having? Is that what you mean? Or is it something different? That's exactly what I mean. When you're able to focus on the moment, the present moment, and get a real sense of what's actually happening, happening in your body, you can sort of recognize past triggers, you can recognize the things that are informing what you're feeling. Like, what am I feeling? Okay, my heart is racing. I'm I'm feeling intense. I'm feeling tense of my muscles. When, when you become aware of that, then you can stop and say, okay, is there an actual danger right now? And why am I feeling this way? Then you can start shifting out of that and, and moving towards another way of thinking. And it, it doesn't take long. Once your mind shifts, you can literally feel immediately the release of that fear in your body. Because what happens at the biological level is that unconscious perception of danger or threat is actually being mediated by this one part of your brain. And then the conscious uh, perception of what's actually happening is being controlled by another part of your brain. And that part controls that, you know, that unconscious brain and it'll turn it off immediately. And you feel that relief and that allows you to explore, that allows you to peek around the corner to actually get out of your paralysis and to do something different. Ebony, this is so powerful. And as you're talking, I'm also thinking about, sometimes there's a little comic relief in it. Like... (laughs) For me, one of my um, one of the areas that I have had to overcome when it came to anxiety was around finances, and I, you know, I would do. I even talked about this in one of my books how I was peeling back the layers of where some of my financial anxiety came from, and it came from you know when I was a kid and my parents separated and things that had always just been easy suddenly felt harder. And I didn't realize how much it had impacted me, so much so that many of my thoughts were very irrational. When I wasn't in any sort of financial danger, I, you know, even today, I have to be very intentional. I can, I can feel anxious when there's actually not any danger, nothing to be anxious about. But the process that you described that I've, I've put myself through several times often results in me laughing. Like, <laughs> like, okay, what, what were you actually afraid of? Because when I look at the truth of matters, because there's no danger, it's remarkable how my brain can process information, almost like a trigger, you know, a yes. trigger from, you know, when you were 14, this is what it was, but hey, you're 40 something. That's not what it is anymore. And it really isn't. And yet what you're saying is it's really real. It feels real. And if we don't question it, 
we will proceed as though there is an issue, even when there isn't. Absolutely. And it can, the shift can be immediate. And that shift, that immediate shift in your mindset could be the difference of you having a panic attack or making the wrong decision or, you know, uh, choosing, you know, something really bad for yourself versus, you know, being rational and thoughtful and mindful about your next move. Um, one example that I like to share with my students when I'm describing this type of thing is, let's say you're taking a walk and you there's like a rope, a tangled black rope. Your immediate unconscious fear system, based on your previous memory or some past experience, would say, snake, snake, that's a snake. <laughs> and so your body reacts to it. But as soon as your conscious brain, those other brain areas, picks up that that's a rope, immediately it's like, oh, that's just a rope. And the, the fear goes away immediately. And then you can proceed with your walk. That's how it, it is in life. What a great illustration. Yeah, that, that, that we're, <laughs> we're on the verge of running somewhere, screaming, <laughs> when it's just a rope on the ground. Yeah, it's just a rope. <laughs> so a big part of your work and your passion is around helping to reduce mental health disparities. So what are the mental health disparities that you're trying to reduce in your research? Yeah, so when I think of mental health disparities, I'm referring to differences that people face in their mental health journey due to the social group that they belong to. Mm -hmm. For example, in the United States, African-Americans are persistently less healthy and we experience worse treatment outcomes in general. Um, we typically have more difficulty accessing mental health services um, compared to our peers and other populations. Also, women are two times more likely to be diagnosed with depression and anxiety um, than men. And our symptoms tend to be more severe and debilitating. So my research is aimed at trying to understand the factors that contribute to these disparities, whether it's biological, whether it's social, whether it's you know structural racism. Um, there's a myriad of factors, and I'm trying to uncover and unravel what those factors are to help um, reduce those disparities. Wow. So what have you discovered so far? Well, uh, I've discovered when it comes to women, um, there are a lot of underlying biological reasons at play. Um, women, we, due to our reproductive uh, system, we are, we produce uh, and we have a reproductive cycle that fluctuates our hormones throughout our life cycle. And that seems to really be at play with our heightened risk for anxiety and depression. Um, mm. Something that men don't have the same level of like fluctuating emotions in terms of the, um, you know, the monthly menstrual cycle, um, menopause and things like that. And then when, when it comes to other groups such as racial and ethnic minorities, there seems to be a direct link to intergenerational and historical trauma forced upon this population, as well as continued lingering effects of discrimination and biases um, in healthcare practices and generally just in our society. So when you say the historical trauma, and because I've read that some of this is even embedded in our DNA. Yes. Can, can you talk a little bit about that? Because to me, that is, it's mind-blowing. It the is. The idea of trauma of, you know, of 
all of the things that have happened over centuries could change the DNA. Yes, it is really mind-blowing. When I was a postdoctoral um, trainee, when I first got my PhD, I worked um, at a place called um, Grady Hospital in Atlanta, Georgia, Mm -hmm. and we worked with highly traumatized um, individuals and we collected their, um, their DNA. And what we found, and it's just mind blowing, is that there are uh, snippets within our DNA that gets passed down from our parents and from our ancestors that are residuals trauma effects. So the trauma that our ancestors experience actually change our our DNA in real time. So if you if you and I experience the trauma today, our DNA can actually change. It's a process called epigenetics, mm-hmm. and then we can pass that change down to our offspring and it lingers and it becomes a cycle. So the way our ancestors had to deal with trauma, the whatever they did to cope can actually, we can hand that down to our children and it goes on and on. And so that now you're looking at a whole new population of people that that deal with trauma differently, that, that deal with fear differently, that have a different anxiety response based on the experience of your ancestors. Wow. And it's a real thing. And so how might that affect someone in, in their real everyday life? Like what might they do differently? Well, the main thing to do, I believe, is to be aware of your trauma response, to to be aware of the things that trigger you, to be mindful, and also to take stock of your your family's trauma response. If you notice that there are a lot of um, addicts in your family, if there's you know alcoholism, other forms of drug addiction, then you can count on that you probably have a higher risk mm-hmm. of spiraling out of control if you decide to use substances as a form of coping. You're not going to be the same as someone who doesn't have that in their history. So when you decide to try alcohol or some type of drug, there's a higher chance that it might actually get out of control for you and you actually might end up being addicted and dependent. So it's really very intentional, very mindful, again, recognizing, you know, your how your body reacts to and respond to danger and also recognizing how your family the historical significance of people in your environment. How did your mother and your father um, respond to threat and stress? And be mindful that that could actually mean that you might be more more vulnerable and you need to take extra steps and precautions to avoid developing a disorder or an addiction. That's so interesting. You know, um, these last several years, we've had so much racial unrest, social unrest, And I've read about uh, PTSD occurring, particularly with African-Americans, just watching, Mm. for for example, videos that are police brutality. I know I've had that response. Um, I remember, I think it was 2016 when there were several back to back and then there were things spiraled out of control that summer. And there was one in particular I watched, um, wasn't even expecting to watch it. I was on social media and there it was. And I clicked play and it was, um, I believe it was Alton Sterling in Louisiana. And I had nightmares for several nights, like of, you know, somebody having a gun at my head, like 
a response I wasn't expecting. And what I realized was um, I can't, I can't watch those videos repeatedly. Now I also felt guilty <laughs> for not watching certain videos as well, because it almost felt like, well, it's kind of my responsibility. And it's not a matter of not having concern or wanting to do something to help, you know, stop some of these issues. It is, I think years of whatever you've been through, right. Mm-hmm. Of um, that, that deals with racism or deals with these issues and then seeing it right there, or even just looking at how we have social media in front of us. To me, even seeing people's ugly comments um, or being completely insensitive to others' experiences or diminishing them, those things I found, you know, as much as possible, I have to stay away from because you end up getting very riled up. You can even get um, to the point where perhaps you have a, a skewed view of what the people around you are thinking. Um, and so I'm wondering with all that we've been through in the world, um, it, it appears anxiety is increasing. (laughs) How can we help ourselves to lower our anxiety levels or at least keep them from rising when we're constantly exposed to media, we're exposed to what everybody thinks, you know, 20 years ago, we, we didn't see strangers comments about what was going on in the news and now we do because people can comment on stories. What can we do to help ourselves from a, from a neuroscience perspective to keep the anxiety at a level that is manageable? Again, I really think it starts with understanding how fear and anxiety gets into your body. And it starts with the sensory information in your environment. Let me just say it is never normal to watch or see or experience a person being murdered before your eyes. That is not, that is a very traumatizing thing to see. And what has happened with the emergence of social media and, you know, we have these phones is that we're seeing, and so many people worldwide are seeing um, these, you know, people, particularly group, particular groups of people, black people being murdered before our eyes. And, It's a lot of it and it's not normal and it should never be something that we should be uh, receiving into our bodies. Mm -hmm. So if we can control and filter that information, that that's a first step. On the one hand, I understand you don't want to ignore, but we know this has been going on for a very, very long time. And it's only now that it's because of technology that it's becoming, you know, prevalent and but we know it exists so you can know something exists and not have to keep watching it. So I am very mindful about what I consume and I purposely do not consume those uh videos. When I see them, I don't want to see another black man or black person being murdered before my eyes. I don't want to see anybody be murdered for that. Um and I don't want my children to see it. So you you have to be mindful of those things and also control um these false narratives that get put out into the media and are really designed to draw attention. You know, fear is a great tactic for clickbait, selling ads. You can control what you, what you receive in your body. And to me, that is the the first step towards relieving your anxiety with all the things that are happening in the world, 
and they will always happen. And much of what's happening is not within your domain of control. So it really doesn't matter for you in the immediate sense. Um, and there are things you can do in the long term, but you know, you don't have to see it every day. So I would just That's say, really, point. like you don't control. Have to see it. <laughs> yeah, you yeah. don't. You know it's happening. You know it exists. You can alter your your life accordingly, but you don't have to get fed it on a regular basis. Um, and I think that'll be a big difference if you could do that. That's so good. One of the things that I uh, I implemented was to simply read the news. <laughs> so yes. Like, you know, I keep I keep the AP app, for example, on my phone, let me just read the read the article as it was originally written, I want to be informed. But yeah, you're right. And the video images are so much more um, uh, graphic and create stir up a lot more emotion than reading, mm-hmm. uh, than reading an article. So there's yeah, obviously some really great things that we can do. Um, so just just one or two more questions, Ebony, you are so fascinating. <laughs> <Just>. <laughs> I love um, I love hearing your take and you explaining what this means, you know, in our brains. So when we think about you know the pandemic, the politics, all of that kind of stuff, um, and I'm thinking about relationships, right? Because it could for a lot of people, it's created differences of opinion that have impacted their relationships. People are um, struggling even with coworkers who might feel differently about, you know, how they should have shown up in the pandemic or not shown up or, you know, differences of opinion when it comes to, uh, the political sphere. And I'm wondering, does neuroscience say anything about that when it comes to the fear that we seem to have more and more of each other and, and what we can do to really connect more intentionally in our relationships, even when there are differences of opinion? Uh, yeah, so it's it's all about recognizing and giving grace uh, for differences of opinions, of experiences. Everyone mm-hmm. is navigating their own unique experience. When you open your eyes in the, in the world, when you wake up, no one else in the world is seeing what you see. And as you navigate the world, no one is experiencing what you're experiencing. No one has your past. No one knows what you're dealing with. And so I I often, you know, try to find grace and try to play devil's advocate when dealing with other people because you never know what battle they're experiencing. And the only control you have over is your experience. And so the way you react to them, the way you boundary, you create boundaries around what their uh, experiences, how that can impact you is all within your control. Mm. So my advice, I guess, from a neuroscience perspective, but also just a life you know, perspective, is that uh, you, your brain is yours and, and only yours. And everything that you know and experience is completely you know, of your control. And so you have to learn how to uh, just give people their grace and their experiences and, and control what affects you and how you react. Yeah. So being able to set those boundaries and, and the thought that's coming to me is take care of your brain. Yes. <laughs> take, take care of your brain, what you're exposed to, the conversations that you're having, um, as many doses of positive emotion <laughs> Yes, yes. as you can have. Obviously the positive emotion helps us better deal with the negative emotion. Um, Ebony, is there a favorite question you have 
because I'm so into powerful questions because they can coach us. Is there a favorite question you have that can help a person reduce anxiety and fear when they need to get unstuck? Uh, Yes. So my favorite question is, what's the worst thing that can happen if you do the thing that you're afraid to do, or if you face the person you're afraid to face or move to the place you're afraid to, what's the worst thing that can happen? And, you know, once people can get a clear answer about that, you know, that question, then there's a follow-up question that what's the one thing that you can do right now immediately to start the process of mitigating this imagined fear Mm. that you're perceiving? Whatever that is, could it be that, you know, you take a bite-sized chunk of it? Could you visit the place that you're afraid, you know, of moving to? Um, Try it in small, like what's the one thing you can do right now? Because it's all about taking control and taking action and recognizing real threat versus imaginary threat. And once you have those things under control, I think that's your best, you know, strategy for getting unstuck. That's so good. So practical and yet still rooted in science. I just really appreciate how practical you are, the work that you're doing, this whole idea of reducing mental health disparities, dealing with fear and anxiety. I am, I'm honored that you came on the podcast, but I'm just so proud of you. <laughs> I just want to see you. <laughs> Thank continue you. To make, yeah, to just continue to make the impact that you're making. Um, is there anywhere people can go to like to find you and the work that you're doing? Are there any resources that you might recommend? Yes. So I do have a personal website, uh, ebonyglover.com. And um, it's, you know, it's a way to sort of see what I'm up to a little bit about me and also to reach out to me, especially if you would like to hear me talk more about some of the topics that I've discussed here. Um, I also have a social media handle for both um, Twitter and also Instagram and LinkedIn. It's ebonyglover.phd. And on my website, I do have a link for how to access mental health services because lack of access is really a major cause of the mental health crisis that we have in America. Mm -hmm. So I created sort of like this quick guide to get you started if you're seeking services. Um, So it's ebonyglover.com forward slash mental health services. And it's just some really, you know, I think uh, quick ways to to navigate uh, if you're just needing to find therapy, if you need to understand more about mental illness and mental health, um, and just knowing where to go and where to, where to start. Oh, what a wonderful idea. Because that can feel intimidating, especially if you've never uh, gone to therapy or sought out information about that. What a great resource. Um, I so appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you for spending some time with us. Thank you for sharing some really practical tools to be able to decrease fear and anxiety. And I'm wishing the best in your research moving forward. Thank you so much, Valerie, and all the best to you as well. If you're already a coach, but you aren't certified, check out our certified personal and executive coach program at the CAP Institute and our mentor coaching experience just the kind of training and coaching you need to take your coaching to the next level. You can find out about both at capinstitute.com. That's C-A-P-P institute.com. And don't forget, we'd love to hear from you about this podcast. Just leave us a review 
on Apple Podcasts. We read all of them. Thanks so much for joining me today. And I cannot wait to talk to you on the next episode of the Coaching and Positive Psychology Podcast.